Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 4, Chapters 3 and 4 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 4, read by Jeff Brightman, Baird Brucher, and Lindsay Summers. Part 4, Chapter 3, Edith's Intent From inside the scriptorium, Knochtoch heard someone call for the boat, and after a little while he went outside. Someone came up the path, a young woman. Her hood slid off her red hair. Deirdre, you have come back. My darling Deirdre, how is it possible? He stood still and waited for her approach with his arms spread slightly, poised to embrace her. But she was shorter than Deirdre, her hands small, her face more square. She stopped in front of him. Edith. Father Knochtoch. She gave him a firm look. And he knew she wanted something from him, something serious. But suddenly she seemed struck that the moment was too serious as they gazed at each other. And she made a little laugh. Come, he said. She followed him to his office where she sat, and he stood behind his desk. She swallowed and settled herself, hesitating. Please, do sit, she said. Did she know about his illness? Did everybody know? He ached and was grateful to sit. You were never shy before, he said. She bent her head to the side. I was a child, so of course I said whatever was on my mind then. Still... When in doubt, that's the best thing to do. Didn't Deirdre have a green mantle such as this? No, hers was red. But Deirdre might have the same look. Yet Deirdre's eyes were blue behind the opal cast of blindness. And here, Edith's eyes are hazel dark and penetrating. What are Deirdre's eyes like now? He pulled his hands into his lap to hide their trembling. She cleared her throat and bowed her head, looking up at him. I would like to join my aunt at the convent at Kildare. You'll remember Aunt Fiona went there after my little cousin was stung. Yes, you have come for permission. What does Morgan say? Edith smiled with some embarrassment. She said, Tell him he must judge according to what is best and useful to you, and not to romanticize. She blushed. She is direct as usual. Knochtoch smiled back. 
Some man is missing an interesting wife in Morgan, he thought. You were caught between us, you know. She did not want those lessons, filling your mind with impracticality. And I don't feel a need to win in some way. I don't count it as a victory. What matters is what's in your heart. It is a hard life to give up a husband, to give up children. I'm lying. It would be a victory, but I mustn't let my bias guide me. It must be her own informed decision. She intertwined her fingers in her lap in a firm gesture, ready for his questions, confident of her answer. This world is mortal. A husband's love can fade. A child can die as often as not. I want what lasts forever. But my fear, he sighed and considered his words, my fear is that you might be running away from life. When I found you, I never told, not even Morgan, and I should have told her. Why didn't you? She looked away from him and stared at the ledger on the desk. I didn't want to shame you. I thought it would make everything worse. I'm grateful you didn't tell. I was ashamed. And it is a mortal sin. She didn't look up. He started to reach for her hand, but she wiped her eyes. He wanted to do more, but he waited. He could not hold her and soothe her. She might as well know now she was giving that up. When she opened her eyes, he looked into them, trying to quell her feelings with a direct and open gaze. Her eyes cleared, and she raised her chin. Leaving the sin aside, he continued, I want to be sure that the convent isn't just a form of escape. It is compared to death at times, the white martyrdom. You would be separated from your family forever, breaking the bonds of their closeness. Your family loves you very much. Could you sever that tie? To pray and fast? To work and study with a life unsweetened by the honey of familial love? Ordinary and wonderful love? She straightened in her chair and looked straight ahead with a nod. She spoke as if she had been planning this speech. I have loved my family, but it does not sustain me. All this while, I have been sustained by the thought that there is another life, and I have been living a shadow life. All the day, as I work at my tasks, there has been another me doing other things. I milk, I chop wood, 
I cut sedge, and I hear the bell here, and another me is praying, chanting words I long to understand, reading sacred and soothing verses, putting quill to parchment. A shadow of myself has been living this life always, since I first knew of it, and I long to join my shadow self and be whole. I ask you to let me be whole. She was not demanding or pleading in the way she spoke. He saw the face he remembered, frank and open. The sadness of another memory cast a shadow over him. I wish I had such words for my sister when she asked me why I was leaving. You are driven to it, but I must say, from my experience, that your life may be different from what you expect, from what you are dreaming of. She held out her hand. Do you regret? Forgive my asking. But do you? He smiled. Often at the moment that I might start to feel regret, the bell rings and it is time to pray. That is my answer. She looked at him steadily, her expression asking him to go on. He shrugged his shoulder and raised his index finger like a teacher. And in true prayer, there is no ambivalence, no questioning or self-doubt. There is no room for it. My lungs are full, my life is my breath, and the breathing, the chant that is God's breath, carries away the uncertain and petty thoughts. Those are born of idle moments. Time to regret means there is too much time on your hands. She smiled, but shook her head. This was not enough. Does it? Or are work and prayer only distractions from your feelings? You question me, as always, he said, smiling back. I want to know what I should expect. He closed the ledger next to him, pushed away the wax tablet of figures, and cleared the space in front of him as though clearing the way for complete honesty. I have sometimes been frustrated, unsatisfied, and doubtful if my effort was worth anything. But regret, regret is a luxury. It is the luxury of believing one's choice was free. The luxury of being idle enough to think of oneself. Is our choice not free? Perhaps I meant without cost. Regret is the belief that one can gain without paying any price. I would pay that price again and again. I pay it every day. And it is with a full heart. I wouldn't trade what fills my heart for anything. She considered this, glancing around the room, 
taking inventory. She is planning her office for when she is abbess. Her gaze came back to him, more certain than ever. I am settled. May I go to the convent? I am surer than ever. I know your decision isn't from caprice. Yes, you may go. She slid a small book out of her sleeve. This belongs to you. I kept it all this while. It was the Psalter he had taught her from. He took it with a smile and wondered if she would have kept it if he had said no. She said, I have sometimes tried to teach the little ones when it's raining or there aren't many chores. The little ones. What became of Emer? he asked. She looked surprised. Then the sad memory came to her, but she rallied with a brave face. She is still young, not old enough to have married and left. She is quiet and hard-working, and will be a model wife. What is her disposition? Is she hard? Oh, no, very tender and watches over the younger children with great care. They love her very much. Edith stood up and waited for another question. Canochtoch said, Let us pray. They bowed their heads, and he recited the breastplate of St. Patrick, the deer's cry. Deirdre's favorite. Then he said, if you would like to spend the night in our guest house, you're welcome to. She pulled her cloak around her. Thank you, but I'll go back and prepare for my journey. Do you have someone to go with you? Brother Seda will ask your permission to take me. I wanted to ask you for myself first. Very well. Again. She stood as if expecting another question. He went to the door and opened it for her. Goodbye, dear father Tach. Goodbye, dear daughter Edith. Brother Seda was waiting outside the door, and Kanachtoch watched her slip away with him down the path. The bell was struck for Nonis and a crowd of monks appeared between him and his view of the woman leaving. Once a week, after Tierce, the Gospel Committee met. Marcus, Gormgal, and Reuben came to Kanochtoch in the abbot's office. Gormgal was always early, coming straight from the chant to try to decide any matter before the others arrived. Kanochtoch sat stiff in his chair, his hands curled in loose fists on his desktop, repeating, We'll see, as God wills, to Gormgal's eager suggestions. There was a knock, 
and Kanochtoch expected Gormgal as usual, but Marcus entered and knelt. Kanochtoch indicated the chair for him to sit. Marcus's crisp, handsome features had hardened, and his eyes, that were always so frank and knowing, now seemed closed off from sharing, hidden behind their dark, opaque brown color. He sat informally. Though he paid his respects to Kanochtoch, he didn't make much obeisance to the man he'd been at school with. Kanochtoch was glad of that. I saw Edith, Marcus said. Yes, she is joining Sister Fiona. Marcus licked his lower lip, sucking it in. His eyes narrowed. Yes, I suppose she is my sister now. He shook himself, as it should be. I know Brother Reuben is your Amkhara, but if you'd ever like to talk, please come to me. Marcus nodded, spreading his legs, his elbows on his thighs. Just give me work. I lose myself in it. There's plenty. Kanochtoch cleared his throat and tried to sound as if the next matter weren't important. I am not able to do so many pages now. Marcus looked up, then straightened and looked Kanochtoch in the face. As always, he looked as if no secret could be kept from him. Are you not well? Kanochtoch waved his hand. Only very busy. My office has many cares. Marcus glanced at the hearth. The day had warmed, but a fire was burning, and he rubbed the perspiration from his neck. He looked at Kanochtoch again. Kanochtoch felt the monk didn't believe him, and he stiffened, waiting to be questioned further. But Marcus didn't pursue it. Do we need another scribe? Kanochtoch nodded. I wanted to ask you how Kayla's letters are. Oh, they're very advanced. Marcus seemed to surprise himself in realizing it. Yes, very advanced, and ambidextrous as well. I'd like him to contribute some pages. He didn't answer at first, a look of concern on his face. He glanced at the fire again. He hasn't taken final vows. Perhaps this will inspire him to. There was a knock, and Reuben and Gormgal entered, knelt, and took their seats. They discussed how many pages were completed, the state of each gospel of the new book, what paints and inks were running low. Luke was finished, and Matthew in good progress. They discussed where to have full-page illuminations. 
the portrait of Mary and baby Jesus that Oikade had requested on Dunad long ago was done. It was the first page they'd finished, long before Kayla returned with the lapis. Mary's gown, colored in royal purple, as Gormgal insisted, the lapis now unnecessary for that. Kernochtoch could tell Gormgal had been waiting with an anxious look for a pause to say something. With a sigh, he asked, Is something wrong, Brother Gormgal? Gormgal coughed, his thin chest shaking, one finger poised in the air. Reuben reached over and patted his back. Gormgal heaved a breath. I was looking over some of the pages and found something that disturbed me very much. I am afraid to say it, but I must. Someone drew an ornament of a creature with an enormous phallus. Kanachtoch and Rubin looked at Marcus, who seemed distracted by some piece of dust between his fingers. There is no place in the gospel for an enormous sexual organ, Gormgal continued. Kanachtach stifled a laugh and coughed into his sleeve. Reuben said, well, Marcus, I draw from life, from nature, he said. We draw griffins and lions with eagle heads and man fishes. What do you mean we draw from life? Gormgal asked. Marcus shrugged. I won't do it again, then. Gormgal looked at Conochtoch expectantly. Yes, don't do such things again, Kanachtoch said. Gormgal looked deflated that there was no punishment. He pressed his fists into his thighs and bit his lip. Kanachtoch pulled his hood up over the back of his neck, despite the warmth of the room. We need another scribe, he said. I have become too busy to continue doing my share. None of the boys are ready, said Gormgal. It's a man's job. Kanachtoch looked at Marcus, who cocked his head. I think Brother Kayla has the talent, Marcus said. Reuben nodded. Aye, he has learned a great deal. Gormgal's neck reddened. Kayla has procrastinated. He has made no commitment to us. He is more of a visiting guest than a monk. Kanachtoch rubbed his hands together. I think Kayla will commit, and I think contributing to our great work will influence him. Gormgal raised his chin and scraped his teeth against his lower lip, 
I think it's completely inappropriate. God brought Brother Kayla far, and he has had the opportunity to learn scribing in several schools. Let us not waste his education, Reuben said. I agree, said Marcus. Kanachtach paused, sighing through his nose. Let us pray for Kayla to join our mission. Let this holy work inspire him. Kanachtach stood, signaling the end of the meeting. I will fast and pray, Gormgal said meekly as they left. Part 4. Chapter 4. Kela continued. I was assigned to help with the great gospel of Kalamhile, and my tasks were tedious though necessary. My chief labour was to cut quills, which I hated. I cut hundreds of them, like the hides they came from all over Scotia. The best feathers, the flight feathers from the right wing for a right-handed scribe, and the left wing for a left-handed scribe such as Marcus and I, there's the buzzing sound as we strip the barbs, the fluffy pith from the inside piling up as we tease it out with a tiny stick, the curved cuts of the sides, the snap of the end and the snap of the tiny center slit. The knife has to be quite sharp not across the end of the quill, and the cuts had to be perfectly straight. I ruined at least a dozen quills. But it came, and I cut quill after quill every day. I would have liked to chant, or sing to keep the pace, it's hard to work in silence. But I was in between worlds, because I had the decision yet to make. I had not taken final vows. I could take my place and rise to be a high chief. I could leave at any time. I needed an Ankara to discuss it with, and Kanaktak chose Marcus for me. Walked on the beach to find a shell or two to use as dishes for mixing the paints. He picked up a shell and studied it. I asked if it was the creature that made purple dye. He said no, and dropped it with a somber look. I picked it up. Something tugged at my memory. There was the boy on the island of women who died from the bee sting, do you remember? Marcus looked up at the sky. My stepson. I stared. How did I not know that? You're busy with your own concerns, I suppose. Do the others know? Perhaps, though now that Brother Jeremiah has gone to be the abbot on Tyree, no one seems to be so interested. I looked over at the other island. You never go there anymore. My wife took our child's death as a sign. She withdrew to a convent. Thoughtlessly, I asked, Do you think it was a punishment? He said quietly, I don't believe God punishes people by taking the lives of little children. My penance is to live among people who do. Ashamed, I didn't know what to say. I put my hand in his. He grasped it and looked at me with his dark eyes which were always so intent and annoying. 
Before the wisdom in his eyes had been mingled with a kind of pleased look, Zevi took his lot at the monastery as an ironic joke, at his own expense. But now he looked a little more tired. The humor drained away. I hoped whatever I had felt was in him was not entirely defeated. I said, Perhaps working on the great book will ease your mind. He took a deep breath and looked across the sun. The angle of the sun lightened his eyes and a look of acceptance turned his lips slightly up. Yes, I do take that work with pleasure. And I understand that you can scribe. I lowered my head. I have done some lessons and letters. Well, perhaps I can teach you about the illuminations. You must ask Brother Gorngul to show you the Gospel of Lindisfarne. We still have it here for inspiration. You must ask tomorrow, first thing after terse. The next day, I approached Gormgul's desk between the locked bookcases and asked to see the Gospel of Lindisfarne. The librarian's head bobbed in the palsy of old age. He pointed his long bony finger at me. You have not taken final vows. I wanted to see the book now very much, and I looked at his chalky white face, his watery blue eyes gleaming with some inner rage I always felt was there, though I never knew what for. If I obtain the permission of the abbot, may I see it then? I asked. His thick tongue darted to the corner of his mouth. I would not gainsay the abbot. I went to Connachtuck's office, kneel in before him, as we all did in respect. He smiled at me. But there was something in his stiff smile and short breath that made me sense he was in pain, or not feeling well. I was going to ask him if he was ill when he spoke first. Scribing is quite mature and valuable to us. We would like you to contribute pages to the new gospel. Brother Marcus will get you started. I caught my breath. I didn't expect this. I haven't yet taken the vow. He replied, I think you're afraid of any decision. You can't live your life in a half-world, half in one place, half in the other. You are afraid of the cost of any decision, and so you won't decide. I feel I should take the life that best suits my temperament. Rising to chief and living a free life is probably what I'm fitted for, because for a long time I've been interested in power and all that it means. Then why don't you go? I pondered this for a few moments. I feel there is some question I haven't asked yet. And when that question is answered, I'll know what to do. I think it's here that I'll find that answer for one way or the other. I knew that my thoughts were strange ones, but he seemed to understand. You speak of freedom. I know you have met kings and emperors. Do you consider them free? I shook my head. He continued. Do you not know the greatest freedom of all is to give up the world? I have heard that said, and in my mind I understand that, but that idea has yet to penetrate my will and heart. He reached out and clasped my hand. I believe it will, Brother Kayla. He paused. Some may resent such a long hesitation, he added quietly. Is that why Brother Gormgall hates me? I blurted out. What do you mean? I told him how Gormgall had refused my request to see the gospel. 
I hoped Connachtuck would smile on me again and take my side to comfort me, but he did not. It is fitting that the Lindisfarne Gospel stay secure unless I grant permission. You shouldn't take it personally. I blushed. Brother Marcus told me to go to Brother Gormgal. At any rate, we will go. We can go now. As Connachtuck stood, his knees gave way for a moment, and he leaned heavily against the desk. I quickly reached out and helped him up. Are you ill? I asked. He hesitated, and in the way he leaned on me, the answer was too clear for him to deny. I must start to think about a successor. A hard lump pained my throat. It would be hard to stay on here without you. Mingled with my grief was the thought that Gormgal, as the oldest, might succeed him, and to my shame I felt I wouldn't want to live under his hard rule. I will show you now why you should stay on. On our way to the scriptorium, he told me that the Gospel of Lindisfarne was made in honor of St. Cuthbert, described by Abbot Idfrith a generation ago. When we got there, Gormgal knew what we wanted, and without a word raised his key to the lock and took out the book that meant so much to the monastery. The gospel was in a wooden box, decorated with silver and wondrous patterns, but the box was only a hint of what lay inside. Connachta opened it. Light dazzled from the first page. Gigantic letters flashed, outlined with thousands of tiny red dots. My eyes watered, and I had to rub them. They're called illuminations, because they shine like light through stained glass. Connachtuck said. At first I wasn't sure if I was looking at actual words, but as I stared I made it out. It was the letter St. Jerome wrote to Pope Damasus to introduce his translation of the Gospel in the fourth century. You ask me to make a new work out of the old, so that following copies of the scriptures scattered about the world I might set myself up as judge where they vary, to decide which of them agrees best with the Greek truth. Do you think St. Jerome had any idea that 300 years later a copy such as this would be made? I asked. Even old Gormgal smiled and patted my shoulder. I had to turn my head because at the very bottom, the last three letters didn't fit the line and were written sideways. It's a shame the line didn't quite fit, I dared to say. Connachtuck gave a wry smile. Titivellus was pleased. He turned to a page at random, displaying a giant rectangular cue with words inside of it, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. It was bordered with cormorants, twisting birds, and the corner terminated in a cat's head. A cat for Luke, I said with a laugh. Our Luke had loved his pangerban, who, old but still living, slept by the fire in the corner. He stretched and curled his nose under his paw. Connachtuck turned to another page, and it took my breath. The most magnificent of all. What is this? I asked. The Ki Ro page. Chi and Ro are the Greek letters that begin the word Christ. This opens the Christmas story. Christ autum generatio sic erat cum esset disponsata mater eius Mary Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise, who, as his mother, was espoused to Joseph. 
The chi and ro took up half the page, the top of the chi ending in a trumpet shape. Spirals and eagles massed in twisting interlace. The letters of the text were filled in with regal purple, green and yellow, richly outlined in deep black. Is this what we are doing? I asked. Connachtuk smiled when I said we. Yes, and perhaps, perhaps, we will go beyond even this. I think for our chi ro page, the chi and the ro will take up the entire page. And the only other words will be autem generatio, now born. One word suddenly leapt to my mind, to describe the wild and dazzling display before me. Freedom. Under the rule, with the strictness of obedient discipline in every daily task, this work was the place where their hearts knew unbound freedom. Kanaktuk had tried to tell me that to be a monk was to be free of the earthly ties that confine men's souls. A monk's life is like the tide that obeys its God-given regularity. But here was the work of a soul, as free as the boundless ocean. Marcus drew a short straight line on the vellum. He took the dividers and measured the width of it, and then from each end of the line marked twice above and below making two X's, drawing a line between them to bisect the first line. Having established the center of the line, he drew a circle. The lead of the dividers marked the vellum, faintly. He placed the point of the dividers at each of the four points where the circle met the two lines and created the corners of four equal squares. He had me practice this several times. Though I had been practicing lettering, I still felt clumsy with these fine tools. We laid out rectangles of various sizes, connected center points and angles, until the page was covered with circles, arcs, rectangles and squares. I thought I was only going to scribe, and by then I had produced several pages. Now I was taught the secret of laying out the decorative pages. Another day we began the secret of the knotwork. We laid out a square, then divided it in half on all sides, and kept dividing the squares in half, marking all the intersections of these tiny squares with dots. These dots guided the weaving lines, measured only by the compass and the straight hedge, but precisely measured. I drew one line between the dots in a curling ribbon. Now, outline this line. Thicken it by adding a line on each side of it, equidistant, but pay attention to the intersection, as you will go over and under the original line. Alternate where it goes over and under. I had to concentrate and got lost in it. Something quickly confused me. I started drawing the inner border. But as I brought it through, it turned into the outer border. And the outer border became the inner border. I couldn't explain it. But it was before my eyes and I made no mistake. It was a fascinating puzzle that worked by its own rules. I followed lines. I followed them around borders of a page at inside spiraling circles. I spent hours and hours following lines. When the patterns became more complicated, I lost the thread and made mistakes. This vexed me with frustration. Marcus told me the mistakes were caused by a little demon named Titivilus, who gathered mistakes in his bag. He sought to fill his bag a thousand times a day to bring it to the devil. I more than filled his goal. Sometimes, as I drew with my short, hesitant strokes, Marcus encouraged me to draw with the arms, not the fingers. 
I told him I was finding my way and didn't want to extend the line too far. Instead, I drew with short little strokes. He said, It's better at times to make a bold mistake than a hesitant decision. He wanted my lines to be sure, to be definite, so that the quality of the line was firm and clear, even if it went in the wrong direction. You can plan one on a waxed tablet, and if we approve, you may be asked to produce it for the great book, Marcus said. And the chi roll page? Abbot Connachduck himself will lay that out. I will color it. You will help by mixing paints. There is always something you can contribute. I spent my free time designing a page of geometric design. I was partly inspired by the designs I'd seen in Baghdad. Regular geometric forms with no figures. It was a page of crosses intersecting in circles, like patterns woven in a Persian carpet. Whenever I showed my progress to Marcus, he told me how I could add more intricacy to the design until it seemed to explode on the page. After several weeks, I was invited to show my design to the committee. Reuben and Marcus were pleased by it and said so, remarking on the symmetry of the design and the colors I had planned. Gormgal sniffed and held it to the light. Symmetry is not the issue. Only, does it glorify God? Connachtuck looked tired. I will keep the design here and we'll see if there's a place for it. I had hoped for more commitment than that. He seemed to divine my thoughts, for he said, Commitment is more satisfying, as anyone knows. It was a pointed remark. I heard Gormgal chuckle, and I blushed with shame. That night on my cot I turned it over in my mind. In the world I could be a chief, and own horses. I could have the smith make silver cups for me, wear jewels. I could have power. But there was nothing in the earthly world that compared to the magical power of that holy book. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.